Bruce Feiler tells the story of uh, describing a visit to St. Catherine's Monastery, which is on Jebel Musa. Jebel Musa is uh, the traditional site of Mount Sinai. Bruce Feiler um, had some hesitation about going up Mount Sinai uh, because he was somewhat familiar with uh, what the Bible says about what happened at that event on Mount Sinai. And so he expressed that to um, the gentleman who was leading them at that point. He was a man associated with the monastery, a gentleman named Father Justin. Uh, here's what um, Filer said. He said, Mount Sinai was so sacred and so highly combustible, I love that description, that no one was allowed to climb it, no less touch it or look at it or sleep on it. And so with those words, he, he then asked the question, how is it that we would have the audacity to ascend it? He says, Father Justin, with great confidence, serenely replied, that's right. In the story, when the Israelites first came into contact with the mountain, they had to mark the whole area off. He says more, but to jump to the point, everyone was terrified. So Filer said, well, then if that's the case, how do we justify walking up this mountain today? Father Justin said, in ancient times, a monk would be at the start of the path and he would hear a person's confession to make sure that he was spiritually prepared to be at the sacred place. That's how we justify it. You come to the monastery, you purify yourself, and then you ascend. Have any trouble with those words? You purify yourself. Oh, that. You just become sinless. And then you come on up into the presence of God. Um, Phil Riken, one commentator, goes on to say, we have been trying to purify ourselves since the day that sin first entered the world, right? So how do we then come before a holy God? Because we can't entirely make ourselves pure. We can't be fully just and right before him in any way on our own. For our title this morning, as we come to this passage, Exodus 19, which describes the very uh, text in question that Filer and Father Justin were discussing together, I have titled it from uh, the words of the psalmist, the words of scripture itself, which says, tremble before him, all the earth. We'll learn this morning that yes, our God is intimate and close, and, but our God is also transcendent and glorious. And passages like Exodus 19 there at Sinai remind us with that. First, I'll have you notice in the first portion this morning that someone has to help us know God. I know that may not sound exactly intuitive, but it's true. Someone has to help us know God. Our passage will show us that. This morning I want to back up and read from the beginning of chapter 19 and then on into the first part of where we'll begin today. So follow along with me. Exodus 19.1. In the third month after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. When they set out from Rephidim, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness, and there... Israel camped in front of the mountain. Moses went up to God, and the Lord called him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the sons of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and I brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice 
and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud, so that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe in you forever. Then Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. Pause there. Someone has to help us know God. We can be too flippant, can't we, in our world today, and even as believers today. Our world speaks of God if it honors him or entertains positive thoughts of him at all. They often can be shallow and flippant. Just one more uh, circumstance maybe to be considered. And even believers at times. Rightly, we know that we have an intimacy and we have a boldness, Scripture says, but it's through Christ. And we forget that for us to even consider coming before an omnipotent and purely holy God, someone has to help us to know him. First, I want you to look closely at what I think the passage itself is trying to emphasize for us. I want you to just track the people with me. Um, look in verse 7. Uh, who is it that talks to the elders? Oh, it's, the, it's Moses that talks to the elders. Okay, and then in verse 8, the people answer back. Now, they're answering to God, but to whom do they answer? They answer back to Moses, don't they? And so then, a little later in verse 8, the message is brought to the Lord. Who brings the message back to the Lord from the people? Answer, Moses brings the message back. Are you kind of noticing a pattern? In verse 9, who does the Lord talk to? The Lord said to Moses. And then at the end of verse 9, it's reiterated, who tells the words of the people to the Lord? It's Moses. It's sort of a pattern there. There is a covenant being ratified here in Exodus 19 and through the following chapters. But the covenant can't happen without someone to bring the people to the Lord. Make no mistake, the covenant is not made between God and Moses. The covenant is made between God and the people. But someone has to help the people know God. Also look closely at another emphasis, one of the words that's repeated. It's the word words there in 8. And Moses set before them all these words and then it says, asked and said and answered and told. You've got that multiple times. But then you come back in verse 8, and what is brought back um, to the Lord? It's words. And then in verse 9, um, it's words that are told by Moses. Here, what we'll have in this passage is that the role of Moses is being authenticated. It's being confirmed. If the people had any doubt at this point, after all the plagues and everything else, why would God at this point choose to make it so clear that he was with Moses because Moses is going to be more than just a miracle worker he's going to be more than just a prophet he's going to be an intercessor he is going to be a mediator and this is in fact exactly what what the people are told through Moses in verse 9 the Lord said to Moses behold I'll come to you in a thick cloud 
so that the people may hear when I speak. In other words, they're going to they're gonna see the cloud, and then they themselves, they're going to hear my speaking, but I'm going to be speaking to you to give the message to them, and I'm going to do all of that that way so that what? So that they may believe in you forever. So that they may know that I've invited you into this special role as mediator and intercessor. In fact, we know from other places recording this event and later as well that the people, when this happens, will actually want Moses to intercede. They'll see that and they'll hear that and they'll go, you know, why don't you just go up and talk to God for us? Because we're not so sure that we're ready for that today. So the words are given to Moses, and then the words are given from Moses to the people, a full revelation. Yes, they get a revelation of God. He appears to them to impress upon their souls the reality of who he is. But he even so does it in such a way that he's going to carry the full revelation, the actual message. They won't know just what they see, and maybe they might pick up some words from a distance. I don't know. Maybe the thundering and the quaking and the fire burning is too loud to even make out any actual sentences. The revelation will have to come through Moses. Someone has to help us know God. Now, that may not sit well because you're Americans. And on top of that, we're believers in Christ. And we may think, I don't need someone to help me know God. The fact is, you and I do. It's just that we have forgotten that that someone is already always there, making it possible. Randy, did that, uh, did that work? Did you get it? You guys are the best. All right, awesome, thank you. Can you uh, throw some scriptures up here for me? Let's take a look at a couple of these. First Timothy 2.5. Oh, okay, all right, it's coming out like that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to do this. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men. How many, based on this verse, how many people can come to God for themselves? Answer, zero. Well, technically one, because Jesus is a man, but he is also the mediator. We have to have someone help us know God. And Jesus, in fact, accomplished that. First Peter tells us that. Go ahead. The man Christ Jesus. That's the end of that one. Sorry, I think I gave it to you in a giant font. It, it didn't transfer well. All right. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. Go ahead. So that he might bring us to God. That was the purpose of what he did. We had to be brought to God by somebody else interceding on our behalf. And that is all that Christ has done by his death. Go ahead. You can click through. I wanted those first two. In John, when Christ takes on flesh... We are told the purpose of why the eternal God is going to do that. No one has seen God at any time. Go ahead. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. You see, we wouldn't know otherwise. Yeah, we can see the mountains and we can see the glories of all that he has made. General revelation of creation bears witness to God and teaches us truly of his character. Romans 1 tells us that. But special revelation the very words that God spoke captured in the Bible and then the very words and acts and the description of the person of Jesus Christ himself and all that he was and did, that is what explains to us the nature of God and all that he is. Go ahead to John 17. Here we have the night when he is going to go to the cross for us, Jesus praying. I mentioned this last week, Jesus praying for his followers. And notice a couple of things that are captured here. As he talks to the Father, he says, 
For the words which you gave me, I have given them. Pause there. No, no. Okay, pause. All right. Nice. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them. Golly, that sounds like somebody else in the Bible, doesn't it? I wonder if there's any other connections. Keep going. And they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. Do you see another connection? They will see the cloud and they will hear my voice so that they may believe in you forever. Yahweh tells Moses, I think uh, the Lord Jesus here is echoing back to the lesser Jesus, for he himself, Jesus, is the greater Moses who gave the words of the Father to the people so that they might believe him that he was the promised one, the Messiah, for forever. Later on in that same prayer, John 17, he will say, and I have made your name known to them, speaking to the Father, speaking about us, and I will make it known, go ahead, so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Point there is, it is the work of the Son who has made the Father known so that we can know him, so that we can be loved by him and in his love and in the Son's love. Where are you in your relationship with the Lord today? If you're at a place where you feel like maybe you're a bit flippant, maybe you've taken for granted all the great, incredible blessing that you have, tremble before him all the earth is what Exodus 19 has for me and for you. And it starts by telling us maybe a a pause to meditate on the reality that we cannot even come into the presence of God on our own, but for the God-man who came down to die to bring us to God, to reveal him to us, and now to make us his. And every time you pray, you do it because of that. How do we usually end our prayers? In Jesus' name. Because we are just acknowledging by that rote repetition that there's nothing I pray, Lord, that really cannot fully and truly come to you unless it comes to you through Christ. It doesn't mean that you have to say that phrase in order for it to count. It just means that the reality is he is committed to hear our prayers because of the one who has brought us to God. Amen. So how do you feel about it after all that? Do you like this idea? Are you okay with it now? Someone has to help us know God. God's people said amen. That's the truth. And we're so grateful for it. Next, let's notice that meeting God is not a casual affair. I think you've got the idea of where this is going. But it shows us just that. Meeting God is not a casual affair. Pick up in verse 10. The Lord also said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set bounds for the people all around saying, beware that you do not go up on the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people, he consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. He said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. 
Now, in the bigger picture, what's going on here? In establishing his relationship with his redeemed people and establishing them as his people, Yahweh is about to give them his law, his direction, so they will know what it means to live safely with him, to live in close relationship with him, and also to be his kingdom of priests and holy nation before the world. And so Yahweh makes a covenant with them there on Sinai. And this covenant is much like the forms of the covenants that existed already in that day. The suzerain vassal treaty of the ancient Near East. Don't worry, it's not on the test. In that format, the superior announces his position to the vassal. He may give some history of what he has done explaining the nature of their relationship. And within that, we would find why the suzerain is the superior and the vassal is the inferior. And yet, they're making an agreement together. Then after that will come some mention of the promises of his benefits to the vassals, his, his blessings to that people. And then, typically, will be the laying out of the requirements well, that's very much what we find in Exodus 19 and following. The Lord takes this format that they would have known well about the nations and the peoples around them, but he invests it with so much more power. He is speaking truth through a vehicle that really can't even contain the reality of what he has done for his people Israel. And yet, he condescends to speak in language that we can understand and so he uses this mode. You see, what he has done for them is much more than any other king or conquering monarch or marching army ever could offer or produce for a people. He has rescued them out of slavery. He has guarded and protected their lives. He has provided for them food and water and protection from other armies. We've seen all this in those opening eight cha 18 chapters. He's saved the entire nation. And in fact, what he's done for them, before he ever was their deliverer in the book of Exodus, he was their creator in the book of Genesis. And the people know that already. But in many places, he will bring that to mind as well. No other suzerain can say this as master in his treaty. Well, I made you out of nothing. So, I mean, that should count for the loyalty that you owe to me. And here what we see, and this is part of why I wanted to go back, what we see is then he comes and he speaks of the tenderness of his love. He rehearses the tender provision for them. We looked at this last week in verses 4 and 5 and 6. I bore you on eagle's wings. I brought you to myself. You are my own possession out of all of the peoples on the face of the earth. When you think of the terrifying revelation of fire and smoke and thunder and quaking that happens at Mount Sinai. Understand that it is meant to make us tremble, but understand it is given within the context of God already saying, I own you and you are mine, and there is a tender, intimate nearness in which that terrifying revelation comes. And that tension is exactly the tension that we live in now as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was there for God's people. This was meant to make a mark on the memory of the Israelites. This was meant to leave an indelible impression. 
So first, those verses we looked at last week, God gives them the grace and the intimacy and the tender closeness by his having created them and now fully redeemed and provided for and rescued them. But now it's at this point, as we get into seven in the latter part of this chapter, that he also reminds them with whom you are dealing. (laughs) I bring you to myself, but I'm not like anybody you've ever known. I remember on a couple of occasions uh, having done something, probably some um, impetuous words on my part to one of my parents that brought forth frustration. And uh, a phrase um, that I remember, uh, not entirely inappropriate, that phrase, to help remind me with whom I'm dealing, young man, that wasn't the words, those weren't the words, was this. You know, I'm not like one of your little friends. That's a good reminder. Because sometimes I can treat my authority like one of my little friends. So the Lord says to the Israelites, you know, I'm not not like one of your little friends, (laughs) am I? And he does it for their good. This is not the power play of an overinflated ego run amok in the universe. This is perfect holiness coupled with with infinite power offering a life-saving insight lest the people of God become careless or forgetful. So he's going to give them four prohibitions, four restrictions, four preparations so that they will know that meeting with God is not casual affair. First, he says to them, wash your garments. Ten, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments. What's going on there? Um, You know how it is when God throws a party. He hates it when people show up and like their stuff's wrinkled. No, the washing of their garments was meant to be an outer symbol of an inner reality. And, and we think, well, washing our clothes isn't that big, big of a deal. In fact, I would guess for most of you, 80 to 90% of all that the clothes that you own currently are all clean. Okay, if you're a teenager, that might not be true. <laughs> but for most of us, right, it's, I, you just live with your clothes clean most all the time. And when they're not, you do a couple of things And then you walk away, and you come back, and they are clean. And it didn't really take a lot of your soul, right, to wrestle through that. Uh, Number one, the Israelites didn't have a ton of clothes. So maybe a half or a third of the clothes that they owned were what they were wearing. And those were in some state of not perfectly clean. And the process that they would go through, right, would be much more. And they understood that. They understood ritual cleanness, and they understood ritual cleansing as a picture of inner cleansing. And so they were invited, prepare yourselves to come before the Lord. I think of our brother Mike, who mentioned a couple of weeks ago of how the Lord has laid it on his heart to uh, dress the way he dresses every Sunday when he comes. And I love that, right? That was a very, very fitting thing done as unto the Lord to say, I just want to, I just want to honor you by, by coming with my best presentation of myself, Lord, because I would do it for any dignitary, for anybody of any position on the face of this earth, how much more would I not want to do it for you? And again, Mike was gracious. He didn't say, I'm not giving you a requirement. I'm just telling you this is why I do it. The, the issue ultimately is what? It's the issue of the heart. And so here, even as he tells them, wash your garments, it's a symbol of their inner preparation. Second, he tells them to 
to wait for the third day. Uh, let them wash their garments, 10, 11. Let them be ready for the third day, for on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai. In fact, it's so cool just to uh, read the, uh, the travel log, the travel verbs of this chapter. Um, it'd be fun to just even print them out and highlight them. You can highlight them in your Bible if you want or circle them. Um, you, you have Moses constantly going up and down, right? Um, you have the people once being brought up or being brought to the mountain or to God. And then you have several times where you have God coming down. You understand that all of that is purely theological, right? Moses, the intercessor, the people down here. And, and in fact, we'll read in a minute, when, when God comes down, he comes down to the top of the mountain. <laughs> it's like, were, were you to come up on the whole mountain, you can't even reach me. I have to come down just to get to the top of your thing to meet with you. But he says, I will come down, and I'll do that on the third day. So what does that mean? It means they've got some time. Some time for what? Um, well, I don't know. While we're here in desert, in the desert, let's make some sandcastles. Right? I don't know. We're here in some new area. Let's send out some, some hunting parties or let's go camping. Or They kind of actually are camping. No. No, be prepared for on the third day I will come to you. So he's giving them time for reflection, for sober assessment. I will come to you in thick clouds. I will come and reveal myself to you. So I give you time for self-restraint. I give you time for self-humbling. I give you time just to pray and to cry out. What a great gift that is so that they won't miss out on his coming. As, as shocking as Mount Sinai is and as amazing of a revelation that it is, of the presence and the, and the character and the being of God. Is there anywhere else in all of history that there's ever been a time where God has revealed himself as much or more than he does on Mount Sinai? Yeah, I have two ideas that come to mind immediately, and you could come up with 20 or 30 if you want, and you could bicker over them. One is the Mount of Transfiguration. The other is the cross. Consider both of those. Did the people who experienced those events fully understand what was going on? No, Peter's clueless. I mean, he knows enough to know what's going on, but not enough to have any idea what to do with it on the Mount of Transfiguration. And how about at the cross? No, there are people mocking the God who reveals himself as Jesus does. What does the Lord say in Exodus 19, 10 through 15? Hey, get ready. Because something is about to happen that could radically change your life, and I don't want you to miss it. I want you to have 72 hours or whatever to just sit and pray and think and humble yourself. He goes on and he gives a, a third statement captured there in verse 15. He said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. And, of course, that regulation counts vice versa. For a woman not to go near a man but only needs to be said in one or the other. Why is that? Is that because sex in marriage is sinful? No. What is Yahweh telling the people? He's essentially telling them, while you have this time, while you're washing your garments and humbling your hearts and doing this self-reflection and considering what it would mean to have a visible representation of my presence and me speaking to you new revelation, that will be for all 
of the people. I also want you to fast. You know, the nature of fasting is not that you give up something evil. If you decide to fast next week and you're going to give up something evil, that's not fasting. That's called obedience. That's just called not sinning, right? And, and, and I need a lot of that. But fasting is choosing to sacrifice something good for the sake of pursuing something that's better. So you fast from food, not because food is evil, but because food is a reminder of the gift of God, and yet the reality of the presence of God is so much better than the food that points to him or whatever else it is that you may fast from. We see a similar statement in 1 Corinthians 7 in the New Testament where a husband and wife are encouraged not, not to fast from conjugal relations unless it is for a short period of time and unless it is for the express purpose of seeking the Lord's face. And that's what the Lord is doing here. John Calvin actually commentating on this verse a few centuries ago, I think says it better than I could. Although there is nothing polluting or contaminating in the marriage bed, yet the Israelites were to be reminded that all earthly cares were as much as possible to be renounced and all carnal affections to be put away so that they might give their entire attention to the hearing of the law. Now, that's what fasting really is. It's setting aside of something that is good to gain our attention in a new way that we might be more fully present to the Lord. And that's the third restriction here. And then fourth and finally is the restriction of don't touch. <laughs> don't, don't touch the mountain. Don't come up on the mountain. Don't wander on the mountain. Don't let your animals wander upon the mountain. Because if you do, that will be very bad. Notice what he says in verse 13. Uh, of the one who does this, no hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. So the person was to be killed, but, but even in the, the process of the capital punishment, did you notice the, uh, the, the unusual prohibition about the way that it's to be done? They're not even supposed to touch the guy that wanders up the mountain. Instead, you throw stones at him or you shoot arrows at him, all right? You, you kill him from a distance. They're, they're not even to touch the body or, or to, you know, convey to themselves whatever this person has been a part of. I mean, the, the strict separation is, is a strong statement here. Why is that? Ross Blackburn, speaking of the separation from holy things that we'll find throughout the law, and that really is going to be here in the coming chapters and other places. Um, he explains it this way. He says, such separation from the holy is a separation that, if not honored, it puts the common Israelite in danger of death. He's going to say to them in just a little bit, be careful not to break through to my presence, because if you do, I will break through on you. That's a more literal translation of what he says. Look, best not to come into my presence unbidden, or else you're not going to like the results. And anybody who thinks they want to toy with that restriction, take them out. Meeting God is not a casual affair. Are you bored with God today? Hopefully Exodus 19 helps stir our affections, maybe even through a holy fear, rightly through a godly awe, to say, you know what, Lord? I, I am. I, I'm more excited about the, the latest responses to my posts. 
I'm, I'm more interested in my news feed. I, I, I get excited to think about as I'm driving home that I can get home and go and sit down and check my phone for all. Yes, I picked on the phone all three times. You guys can fill that in with anything you want because I know I'm guilty of it and you might be as well. What stirs your heart? Man, I got to set my alarm a little bit earlier to get up because I got to read my Bible in the morning. And if you're bored, remember the meeting God is not a casual affair. But it's a glorious opportunity to remember this awesome being has condescended to invite you and invite me into his presence, which he can now fully do, throwing his arms around us in Christ. We should never get over that fact. Was it Augustine or C.S. Lewis? I know there's a couple centuries between these guys who said the Christian's common error is thinking that now that he has found God, he no longer needs to seek him, right? Maybe you're bored with the thought of God today, friend, because you've never met him. He is thrilling. And maybe even some of the Christians that you know sometimes don't look like they're that thrilled with him. The problem ain't him. It's us. And we'll be the first to admit it. But we also can give you testimony because we've experienced he is amazing. He is better than our daily bread. More precious than life itself. Maybe, brothers and sisters, those who already know the Lord, we've just forgotten. And so let today be one more reminder. It's okay, you'll need another one next week and the week after and a couple days from there, and so will I. His glory, his awe, his majesty, even as you consider his revelation here. Now, what's going on here in Sinai when it comes to Mount Sinai is that the Lord is going to give them this awesome preparation and then this impression of himself. Because he's preparing for them to receive the law. And, and that is monumental. These chapters in Exodus will mark the governing agreement of the people of God from this day until the day Christ dies. And so it's fairly a big deal, right? And so that's why he wants to make an impression. And so to say the same thing I've said in a different way. When the Lord comes to give his commandments, he comes to command, not just to share his preferences. When the Lord comes, he does not come to affirm your feelings. He comes to lay down the law, literally. He who created the universe issues his ordinances in how to live within the universe he created, and he does not apologize for those ordinances. He who created you and me directs us how to live. And it is good, for he is all wise. That's what the Israelites are to know. I remember a number of years ago, we went through the book of Leviticus together. And uh, I don't know, that might have been a, a suffering for some of you. I don't know. Uh, I thought it was wonderfully rich and taught me things just by studying that I never would have just understood otherwise. And just to see the grace of God and his care and his protection and making himself available to the people 
over and over again. Um, but what's awesome about all of that is that there, there are times with some of his laws, he would tell them, uh, do this, and then here's the reason why. Or it, there would just be obvious the reason why. But then there were other laws where he would just say, do this, and that's it. Because I'm not like one of your little friends. So this is how it is. And the people were to understand, the Lord has spoken, and he is wise. So I will trust him even when I don't know why it is that he has given us this direction. Some of those, in fact, we can look back today, and with the advent of microbiology or um, virology or other things like that, we might look back and go, look how he was protecting them by this and by this and by this law in ways that they probably would not even have known. There are, as of yet, still a number of laws where no reason is given, and as, as of today, we can offer nothing but our best guess. We don't know, but we don't need to. The Lord just says, I've spoken and I'm wise, and it is for your good. And that's a glorious truth. Meeting God is not casual affair. Third, there on Sinai, we see that creation quakes before the creator. Creation quakes before the creator. Pick up with me in verse 16. So it came about on the third day when it was morning that there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was all in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace and the whole mountain quaked violently. When the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke and God answered him with thunder. Pause there. I want you to notice a word that's repeated a couple of times. When the people see all of this, what do they do? Verse 16. Answer, tremble. But you know what's fun? Look down in verse 18. What happens at the end of verse 18? So also the mountain trembles. It's actually the same Hebrew word. My NAS translation uses a different English word, but it is the same word. God appears, and the people shake, and the mountain shakes. Understand, the mountain is the most steady, stable, solid rock that we could point to. And so for it to shake means that something so much greater than the mountain is there. Creation quakes before the creator and it happened there on Sinai so they would know this is my law not my suggestion I give them for your good and I'm wise in doing so notice also so just so we can appreciate how how cool it is the revelation that he gives to them they don't get all the words directly they're going to get them through Moses secondhand there's going to be tablets and there's going to be you know dictation and repetition and, and repeating back to the people to get all the stuff they need to know but here's what they do get they they stand there at the foot of the mountain and they see this with their own eyes in 16 thunder and lightning flashes and thick cloud and loud trumpet sound and then later the trembling of the mountain so what do we have we have a multimedia presentation we have God giving a multimedia presentation of his godness. So you can hear it, and you can see it, and you can feel it 
And there's a fair chance that if there's enough smoke, you might be able to smell and taste it also. I got, I got all the senses covered so you'll know that I'm God. It is meant to make an impression in their memories. So when they're tempted to be flippant. Now for us today as followers of Christ, we need to know that Hebrews 12 will directly contrast this event with our experience of coming before God now today in Christ. In fact, Hebrews 12 is a famous passage contrasting Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. And, and we'll probably dig into that passage just by way of application. We're going to have lots of opportunities, Lord willing, as we go forward in the book of Exodus. So I'm not going to even take you there today. But understand that, that really for the believer, there's a profound contrast that we don't necessarily have an ongoing experience of our relationship with God, of this trembling and fear and shaking in our boots, right? Because that same book, Hebrews 4, the author tells us we have confidence to approach the throne of grace, right? Through the high priest who has gone before us. But understand that the, the nature of God, the character of God hasn't changed. And there are those, even under the new covenant, who were flippant, and they found out that didn't work so well, Ananias and Sapphira and others, right? And so it's really now an encouraging truth for us as believers to meditate on. You know, I don't live in abject fear, afraid of my heavenly father, of what he might do to me. Rather, I live in profound respect and awe because he is holy and good and majestic and beyond my words even to comprehend and so rightly, I shake before him. But I'm so the more grateful as his child that Christ has made me yours, my father. And then finally, in our passage this morning, we're taught. We're taught that the Lord will break forth. The Lord will break forth. Pick up again in verse 20. And the Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down, war the people, so that they do not break through to the Lord to gaze, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, or else the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, Set bounds about the mountain and consecrate it. Then the Lord said to him, Go down and come up again. You and Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, or he will break forth upon them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. First of all, side note that may not have even crossed your uh, mind and didn't for me at first reading. Uh, but the question is, who in the world are the priests? This is Exodus 19, which comes before the giving of the covenant of Sinai, where the Aaronic priesthood is established, right? It hasn't happened yet, but it comes right before it. Um, several good options. Uh, the one that I found really wonderfully interesting and have never thought of before, it could be the firstborn males in every family, possibly, if they were old enough to assume the role. Um, and, and if, uh, well, enough said on that. The reason for that being, in the Passover and the last plague and the death angel comes and the firstborn of every household is killed. What does God say? He says, take the lamb, spread its blood, the death angel will pass over, and then he says, for by this you will redeem the firstborn to me. 
by the Passover, God redeemed every firstborn son in every family and said, now they are mine. What's also, and you're like, okay, well, I'm not quite sure that that makes them priests, but then you get to, uh, I think it's number six and another passage later in Leviticus and the, the establishment of the priesthood. And you know what it says at the establishment of the priesthood? The Lord mentions, for the firstborn are mine, but now the Levites will serve me. And you're like, well, why did he bring up the firstborn there all of a sudden? It's not a slam dunk case, but it is an interesting thought. A couple other options are out there, but it will take us too far afield to consider. Just so you know, if you read over stuff like that ever in Scripture, it's not because the people who wrote this stuff didn't know better and weren't very smart and they accidentally made mistakes. It's just because we don't have all the full information. So there are several plausible possibilities there. What you should notice and what I should notice is Moses alone. Well, Aaron is also invited to come up to the very top of the mountain although we don't have record of Aaron ever being brought. Moses alone will go all the way up the mountain. And then there's sort of a midway house, a halfway station that the priests will come. And later on, 70 of the elders and other key leaders will come. And then there's the rest of the people, which, by the way, is uh, very much like the format for the tabernacle, whose um, uh, specs for building will be given on that mountain. There are successive courts, and in the innermost court, only one person ever went into the very presence of God one day out of every year, the high priest, right? Very much what we have is a picture of, of layers of protection <laughs> around the very presence of God himself. Uh, in fact, we, we just read um, from John a second ago, didn't we, as we looked at those verses up here, that no man has seen God at any time, Right? So what we understand from that is everything that's revealed in Exodus, it's just a glimpse of the backside of the disappearing of the hem of the robe of God as he goes the other way or something like that. Uh, read closely the revelation of, of God in Ezekiel. It, it, it is something like this is the manifestation of the revelation of the appearing of the likeness of God. He, he uses like five phrases that are like levels to remove. He didn't say, I saw God in all his godness. And so what we find is if somebody decides to respond to that with impunity, the godness of God will break forth. If you break forth to gaze upon me, or if the priests themselves don't appropriately consecrate themselves, being invited to come part of the way up, then, and he says it twice, then the people, I'll break out on them, or the priests, I'll break forth upon them. Because I can't help it. It's just who I am. It's just, it's just the way it goes when you're in my presence. That's how crazy dangerous this is. This is a nuclear reactor, and, and there are no, you know, with lead plates in them to deal with it. There's just nothing standing between us and um, this annihilation except for the Lord says, just do it this way and you'll, it'll be all right. And so what the Lord does in his kindness is he offers a summons. You see, notice when they first got to the mountain, they, it says they came to Sinai and Moses went up. That's what we have back in verse 3. They come to Sinai, and Moses just, he's like, I've been here before. This is where I meet God. I love this place. Wait here, I'll be back. And he goes up. 
But then the Lord starts to give his restrictions, and he's going to give a new revelation. And then after that first visit, this is, I think, the third visit up the mountain, by the way, if, I, if I'm doing the counting correctly. Um, by the second and the third visit, the cloud is present. By the third, it's all the other stuff that goes with it, the multimedia presentation. And the Lord summons him now in 20. The Lord came down to the top, and the Lord called Moses up to the top of the mountain. Why? What is the content of what God is going to say to Moses up on the top of the mountain? Answer, tell people not to break through. What's Moses' first response? I kind of think you already told us that. I mean, I mean, it seemed important that you called me up here. And that's the point. The Lord in his mercy will repeat the same commands, and he'll reiterate them. Tell the people not to break through or they die. Lord, you already told us that. Moses, tell the people not to break through or they die. In fact, uh, the Hebrew in verse 24, go down and come up again. Um, going down, you will surely go down. It's something like that. He repeats the idea. Go down, no really, go down and tell the people because this is their life. You see, they needed the warning because no human can prepare him well enough. I don't care if there's a monastery at the bottom of the mountain. I don't care if there's a, a baptism font. I don't care if there's, you know, bleach and, and uh, steel wool, right? You can't, you can't clean your soul enough to come stand before a holy God. Revelation 1 tells us of a day when he will break forth. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him in all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. See, he will break forth. Sinai is a, a foretaste of the glimpse of the appearance of God in all of his glory, and he is not safe. We are not dealing here with a tame deity. To, pro, to, to, to quote Beaver, right, in um, Lion, Witch, in the Wardrobe. Of course, he's not safe, but he is good. And so the Lord gives a, a final summons to exhort. Well, how is your relationship with the Lord today, and where are you at? I hope you feel the tension, because I've, I've had tension this week in this passage. How... How do we rightly proclaim and embrace a revelation of a God who at some level says, be afraid, be very afraid, right? That's, that's the message for today. Be afraid, be very afraid. And yet at the same time, we stand over, under a covenant where we are told, because of your high priest who can sympathize with your weaknesses, you may come before the throne of grace with boldness, right? Which is it? Yes, is the answer. But for today... Be afraid, be very afraid. Let that be, because we need, we need all of the tension of Scripture and all of the reminders on each side. Um, maybe this week will be an opportunity for you and for me. So let me close this way. Why don't you stand with me? You can, before you stand, you can jot down Psalm 45 if you want. I'm going to read from Psalm 45, and we'll close this way. I'm going to just read a couple of verses from there. And what I want you to see is this is a psalm where the people of Israel call out to their, go ahead, you can stand now, call out to their God-anointed king. 
and they are praying for him to come in power, okay? And this was probably an enthronement psalm. It was probably sung or read or chanted whenever there was a new king installed in the nation. But understand, we know, and even they would have known, it was a glimpse into the coming of the messianic king, of the greater king one day. What we have in Exodus 19 is the revelation of God in his coming near, in his profound tenderness, and the revelation of God in his breaking forth in his profound and terrifying holiness. Friend, you will experience one or the other only one day. Psalm 45, verse 3. The people cry out to the king, Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor, in your majesty. In your majesty, ride on victoriously for the cause of truth. And on he, it goes from there. And then come the words speaking of the judgment of the revelation of the king on that day. Your arrows are sharp. The peoples fall under you. Your arrows are in the heart of the king's enemies. And then a little later comes the sweet words of tenderness and nearness as the people look upon their king. And here's what the psalm says, verse 8. All your, all your garments are fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. Out of ivory places, stringed instruments have made you glad. He says there is a sweet aroma that we smell at the sight of you that draws us near. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, our God, might we behold you today as you came in all of your terrifying power for the, for the appropriate purpose, Lord, of us not being facile with you, of us not being flippant with your very being. Almighty God, Holy Father, I couldn't, I couldn't stand here. I couldn't pray these prayers. I couldn't take my next breath but for Christ interceding for me. And so I thank you. And yet through the Lord Jesus Christ, you've done so much more. And so the revelation of your coming is to me and it is to us like the aroma of fragrant cassia and aloes and myrrh. And so we thank you. Grant us this week, Lord, just to stand in awe of you. And if you might even call us in some way to pursue that more clearly, just in some small disciplined way, show us if, if that's your will. We will today proclaim you as our great God. We will thank you for the awesome work of drawing us near. And we will rejoice in no other way. We will rest in no other Savior. We will claim no other hope except our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for being with us here today. If you want to join us for Starting Point Coffee, that's right.